You turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. We are going to be in Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Just as a note, I had noticed in the bulletin, this only goes to verse 13, but we are actually going to the very end of chapter 8. Pull out physical Bible or on your phone, and let's read together God's word from Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. And before we begin, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, may you give us bread of heaven this morning. May the words go forth not void. May they bring us to your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done to, for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of God. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is hevel, it is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. <clears throat> there is a hevel, a vanity that I take that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commended joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done under earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, cannot find it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. To one degree or another, all of us today struggle with the problem of evil, the problem of suffering in our lives. We can go down a philosophical and academic route, hear the words of the moralist philosopher J.L. Mackey, who to paraphrase his argument, if a good and powerful God exists, 
then he would not allow unjustifiable and pointless evil. And since there is unjustifiable and pointless evil, there is no way a good and powerful God exists. But to be honest, I don't think we really need philosophers to explain this problem to us, because you can really just turn on NPR, you can turn on the Daily Wire, you can just walk out, talk with your friends, you can just experience life, and you get what is so hard about this question, that we see evil in this world, we see suffering, and to one degree or another, I think everyone in life, everyone in this room at some point has asked God, why are you allowing the suffering to take place? But the thing about that question is that that's not a modern example. That's not a modern question, because as we see all the way back in Ecclesiastes, our preacher this morning is asking the same exact questions that we continue to ask today. He sees the evil that happens under the sun. He sees the suffering, and it frustrates him. He cannot seem to figure out why this is taking place. He even calls it that word we heard again and again. It is frustrating, hevel, vanity, however we want to translate it. In fact, I would hazard to guess that for most of us this morning, one of the greatest frustrating aspects for our lives, where we most connect with Kohelet's message, is evil in this world. Because, at least from our text this morning, the preacher is going to confront us in two ways, show how evil in this world confronts two notions we have about ourselves. First, evil seems to confront and confound our sense of justice in this world. Look at the text again in verses 10 through 15. What does the preacher tell us? Then I saw the wicked buried, and they used to go in and out of the city. They were the perfect religious hypocrites. They could come to church. They could serve communion. They could do everything of what it looks like to be a Christian, and no one would bat an eye about them. And what does Kohelet say? They came in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is vanity. It is frustrating. And even uh, commentator Tremper Longman says of this verse, this is probably vice for what is the most complex verses to interpret in all of Ecclesiastes. There's a couple questions, but one that is pertinent for all of us, in fact, if you have a physical Bible, you might see a footnote next to the word praised there. And if you go down to your footnotes, you would see that some manuscripts actually have a different word there. In fact, in the original Masoretic text, it simply says that the evil people, the wicked, were forgotten in the city. And that causes us to question, why would that be frustrating? Why would that be hevel? Isn't it a good thing 
that evil people are forgotten in the city. This isn't a question that just modern commentators are trying to change because we can see even the Greek translation, which was around the time of Jesus, changed it to the word we see, they were praised. But the thing about that is think about that question, wicked people being praised in the city. Well, how have we experienced that? How have we seen that in our own lives? Think about this. In 1889 to 1930, there were about 3,700 lynchings that took place in America. And that could have been done by anyone from individuals to mob groups to even at some times, there were cases of 15,000 people gathering. And one example in 1935 was a man named Reuben Stacy in Florida and he was confronted for scaring a white woman, and the entire city lynched him in Florida. They spoke about this event as if it was Christmas morning. You can actually see pictures of children sitting next to the body. People came from states to see this wicked, heinous act that happened. It's perfectly brilliant. Really we see throughout history of times where Wickedness is praised of the city. But even think about the wickedness being forgotten in the city. Think about in 1994, beginning in the month of April, in about the span of 100 days, the country of Rwanda faced one of the greatest evils that they've ever experienced in their life. There is a population of about 7.5 million people living in Rwanda at the time. And within the span of 100 days, at least 800,000 people were killed. There was a mass genocide that took place. And just with that timeline, that's about 333 people being murdered every single hour, five people being murdered every minute of those 100 days. But what was so heinous about it, what was so disturbing, is that the UN did next to nothing to solve the problem. And because the United States, they had a failed, a failed mission in Africa already, they wanted to have nothing to do with Rwanda, and they did absolutely nothing about the Rwanda genocide back then. And to this day, in the aftermath, victims and killers still live amongst each other. They live in the same societies. They live in the same neighborhoods. They even, at times, live in the same house. There are plenty of times we see in our life where wickedness is forgotten. Because when we see this, the preacher points to us the, the essence of what the problem he's trying to speak about in verse 10 is, what he is so frustrated about it. Verse 11, look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, because there is not justice that takes place, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Most likely he's alluding back to Genesis Genesis chapter 6, if you know the story before Noah comes forth, God looks upon humanity and the state of their heart. And in Genesis chapter 6, 
This is God's estimation of humanity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The problem often when we look in the world, when we see evil happening, it's not evil committed against us. It's not going to the extreme of genocide or lynching. So often evil actually begins within ourselves. Scripture tells us again and again, pointing to our own hearts, the own state of ourselves apart from God and separated from him. It's even just common grace for all of us that civil government even works to begin with. The fact that we have a justice system that usually brings justice in our world, that we can have civil government that stands, is something we can praise God for. But not only that, but we can even see this in our own lives. We can see how this applies to ourselves, where so often we feel the greatest temptation for us to commit, to, to commit sin, to do something wrong, is when we just simply don't think we'll be caught. That because no one will ever find out, I can go to whatever website I want. I can drink as much as I want and get in the car. I can say whatever I want on my tax return. I can do essentially just actually horrible things so long as no one finds out. And so often the justification we have that Kohel is pointing out that justice is not served, and because of that, evil actually flourishes in society. And despite all of this frustration he speaks about, what happens in verse 12, beginning in verse 12? He makes a concession here. Even though he's frustrated, he gives us a theological confession. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, though this evil man may flourish, from his wickedness, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. It's not as if the preacher is absolutely hopeless in his message. We can't be too pessimistic with Kohelet, because even in chapter 3, verse 17, Kohelet is the first one to mention that both the evil, the wicked, and the righteous will be judged by God one day. And there is no exception to that principle. But there still seems to be this tension that even when he speaks about wicked getting their just desserts, what did he just say earlier? That the wicked actually prolong their life because of their wickedness. Even go to the very next verse. Go to verse 14, was he say? There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. The righteous people, they're treated as if they're wicked people because of their actions, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There's this tension, there's this thing that he can't seem to grasp, he can't seem to explain in his own message. Because it's important here for us to, again, keep Ecclesiastes in context to wisdom literature. What have we been saying? That it's basically a conversation with the book of Proverbs. And when we read Proverbs, they basically tell us that you're playing statistics with the world. 
that if you follow wisdom and you follow these principles, generally things are going to work out for you. And then Ecclesiastes is speaking against this misinterpretation of Proverbs where so often we treat that book of Proverbs as if they are promises, as if it is guaranteed that life is going to go well. That just because I do well, the car accident's not going to happen in my life. Just because I follow wisdom, that the diagnosis isn't going to happen. Just because I follow wisdom, false accusations aren't going to be made against me. Just because I follow wisdom doesn't mean I'm going to actually, life's going to work out. Even just like on a simple common grace example of this, think of the example of uh, This American Life, their podcast, and they actually had a whole podcast of stories talking about this principle in life where it's called I Did Everything Right, and it's just people trying to do the right thing in life, and they end up actually <laughs> getting in trouble for it. Just one illustration was a cashier named Lenore who she found a missing wallet on the floor. And all of her friends were saying, just take the money. You have no obligation to give it to anyone. There's no, and she was just dead set on this man's gonna come back. I'm going to hold on to it in my cashier drawer. And then he's gonna be so proud and like, this is gonna feed Christmas dinner. I was going to be bankrupt. And now you're bringing back the wallet. And he does come and he comes to her cashier and he actually opens up the wallet and there's money missing. And he immediately accuses her of stealing it. And he storms out of the building yelling, karma is going to get you one day for how you act. Just because you do the right thing is not a guarantee that life is going to work out for you. And that's, that's the tension. That is what Kohelet is trying to point us to. That don't read the book of Proverbs as if it is a guarantee that you're not going to suffer. It's not even a guarantee that you're going to be looked upon as a good person. That, the conclusion that the preacher gives us is verse 15. This is the, all the tensions he's been feeling up to this point that he's leaving us in. This is the conclusion he has. This is the strongest language he's used of these Carpe Diem passages that we've seen. I commended joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. That we can sit under the frustration of the preacher. We can understand this tension that is experienced, this glitch in the system that's happening in life, but to not dwell in it to enjoy the gifts that God has given us, to enjoy life and the small aspects to eat, to drink, to be joyful with the life God has given us. That's actually one of the applications just for this one point, is we can sit with the preacher's frustration, but ultimately we are not to sit in despair. We are to turn with him in joy, to see the very gifts God has given us, as a gift from God, that this is actually something we can be joyful of in life. We can experience the good things in this world. But not only is that an application for us, but second, go back to that problem of evil, and we've kind of been just leaving God out of the equation 
for a lot of this. But we are to look at God's character when we ask that question of evil. In fact, Thomas Watson tells us that we are to love God more for who he is rather than the gifts he bestows upon us. Our relationship with him should not be determinative of how well things are going in our life. It should be determinative of who God is and what he has done. And even for this frustration we've talked about, that evil seems to be getting away with it. The wicked seem to be forgotten or praised in the city. As we've said, Kohelet speaks about a day of judgment in chapter 3. He knows that both the righteous and the wicked will stand before God. And just for ourselves this morning, if God, if justice is intrinsic to his character, if he has a deeper sense of what justice means than even we have today, then he is the one who is most deeply offended by the wicked and heinous things, the crimes that are being committed. And going from there, if God is most offended, if he is a God of justice, we are actually to look towards the future where there will be a day where all things are made right. Tim Keller tells us that God is a God of love, but he is also a God of judgment who will make an account and bring to right every wrong that has happened in our lives. That every good and every perfect gift comes from God, and we might not be able to explain these frustrations, these vanities that happen in life from our perspective. But we know from Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for those who love him. And we can hold on to that promise. We can know that although there might be this contradiction almost we seem to experience in life, that God is the one who takes account of the wicked and the righteous. And one day he will bring all of us to account. And if we are apart from Christ, if we are not standing in that relationship, then it's going to be a day of judgment. Not only do we see that evil confounds our sense of justice, but simply evil just confounds our understanding in general. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, the preacher is given his entire life to this business. He's devoted himself to finding the answers to life's questions. And what is the conclusion he makes? I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. You can almost ask that question hearing that and say, really? You, you've, you've really looked at everything in life, and you've been able to explain every way that God has been working in this world. Even one commentator, Bartholomew, says there's almost a hubris that we seem to here in his words. And the point that he's trying to give us, it's not hubris, he's trying to show us the limitations of his own system. That strictly looking at life under the sun is never going to satisfy these questions we ask about life. We will never have an answer to why righteous people suffer. We will never understand why the wicked prosper. We will never understand why justice is delayed 
in the world. We will never even understand why wicked people are so often forgotten, they are praised, or they are just treated as amazing, righteous people to the end of their life. He's actually leaving us in attention here. He's wanting to frustrate us because he himself knows the limitations of his own system. And he's telling us that apart from God, apart from revelation from him, we will always be frustrated by simply trying to explain things with our bare understanding of how life works out. And not only that, even there are going to be times when we study the Bible, where we study theology, and we can't seem to explain every last detail of what God is trying to tell us. My favorite theologian, Bavink, once said that mystery is actually the lifeblood of theology. It's not that we're leaving things in contradiction, that they're in tension with one another, but it's just simply that we cannot comprehend every single question that we will ask of God. And so often we have to leave ourselves in mystery. We can even see this as an example of the Apostle Paul when he is talking about what is one of the hardest details of the New Testament. Why is it suddenly Gentiles are being included into God's people? And he gives us three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, trying to explain that to people, but he doesn't perfectly explain it, and he actually leaves it in just simply glorifying God for what he does. He simply says, Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable are his ways. There reaches a point where we ask these questions of God, and we simply are called to just praise him for who he is. But not only do we see that there is this tension that is not going to be solved by following the preacher, but we actually can know the fact, finally, and in closing, that this question that Kohelet is asking has been answered by God. That God did not leave us hanging on the problem of evil. He did not leave us hanging why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that the righteous suffer so much? Because actually, the book of Ecclesiastes is, of all the Old Testament books, the one that is crying out, demanding a response that is given in the New Testament. And that response was given in the person, Jesus Christ, who was the righteous one, treated as a wicked person. He died a criminal death. When an evil deed was committed against Christ, he did not have justice speedily executed for him. He never had justice given to him. Despite his fear of his father, despite his reverence and obedience to him, his life was cut short. He did not have life go well for him. Christ faced the greatest travesty of justice by taking the very punishment of our sin upon him at the cross. Albert Camus, describing the cross, says the night on Golgotha is so important in history of man only because in its shadows the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end. Despair included the agony of death. Even Christ himself suffered death. In our place, he suffered the greatest portion of evil and wickedness in this life. And no matter what we face, 
We have a God who is not distant. He's not ignoring evil and wickedness. But he actually answered it. That we can actually turn to Christ in faith. We can turn to him as our Savior and our Lord. And that's not a promise that evil is not going to happen to us in life. But we not only know the fact that God has not ignored that evil, but he has actually answered sin by giving us his own son to die in our place, to take the punishment we deserved. And we can turn to him. And not only is he our Savior, but he is also the one that is suffering alongside us in our suffering. You might struggle today with why evil happens in this world. You might come back to that question of why God would allow evil, would allow suffering to happen in my life. And that's not, as we've said, it's something that even Ecclesiastes thousands of years has been asking. But we have the hope of the gospel, we have the hope of scripture that it does not ignore the suffering of our life. But it has given us this answer. It has answered the problem of evil by God giving us his own son, Jesus, who has suffered in our place and is actually calling us back into this relationship with the God of the universe, the God that we justly deserve punishment, and yet he is bringing us back into this relationship. And with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I know that there is a lot that goes on in all of our life. I know that there is, it's hard for us not to look out in this world and just question what's going on and why are, is all this suffering, this evil that happens in this world, and I'm sure for many of us, we have experienced this in our own lives. Father, I pray today that although we might sit in this frustration, that we might be able to turn to the New Testament, turn to our Savior Jesus, who has suffered alongside us and has ultimately answered this by giving his very life for us, that you are not a distant God, that you are not one that ignores justice, but you are the very essence of what even justice means for us this morning, Father. And I pray that no matter what we face, that we might turn to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in your son's holy name.